The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds, smart investing starts here. Hello, and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. This is your host, Doug Heikinen. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who found that point in their lives to throw caution aside and just go for it. The genesis of this podcast is based on a great appreciation for the lives of Muhammad Ali and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., entrepreneurs, and their world-changing impact. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by iris.xyz, the most helpful place for advisors to come to grow their minds and businesses. Power your advice at iris.xyz. And we're here in soon-to-be steamy New York with Rod Sage, who's the head of digital strategy at Fiduciary Trust International. Hi, Rod. Hey, how are you? Thanks for making it in today. <laughs> Thanks for dressing up for us. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so just tell us a little bit about Fiduciary Trust so we get the, the table set, and then we can go into some, some trends and what you're seeing in the future of wealth management. Sure. Fiduciary Trust International is based here in New York City. They have offices throughout the country, and we're really a wealth management firm uh, with a fiduciary lens on top of that. And so a fiduciary has to manage your money much in a different way than any other investment management or brokerage company. And that's governed by the laws you know, of New York State and some of the other regulators out there around what a fiduciary has to do. Our approach is to lead with planning, make sure every client has a plan and invest their funds and really talk about things at a relationship and family level. Oftentimes you see a bunch of other people in other industries really focus on the individual heartbeat. We, like, we really like to focus on the entire family, the entire relationship and what that means and what those clients' goals are, what issues they're facing and how do we help them through that. So let's get into a little of the future of wealth management. You guys are a multi-billion dollar firm. What are you seeing is, is going to happen here as we move forward with this, this industry and the changing tides of it? There's going to be a greater focus on making sure that you hit all levels of the family. I think most times when you're looking at family and relationships, people think of the matriarch and patriarch, maybe the next level of that, which are their kids. But I think we got to dig even deeper around that. And I think we've really got to change the notion around this whole thing that my, you know, my older clients, because wealth management clients tend to skew older, right? If you think about how people get their wealth, they can get their wealth in a few ways. It can be passed down by family and you can just have a lot of money that the family has and everyone's got a trust type of thing, right? They're kind of a different mindset than someone who is a CEO who's recently came into, maybe their company went public, right? And they came into some money. And the idea of wealth management managing your funds is kind of a new concept to them or newer concept than to someone who's had you know money for a while. Or you may get it from a parent or, or grandparent passing away. And you think about when your parents pass away, they typically pass away when you're in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? So you're coming in to that. And so a lot of people have this mindset that because of wealth management, clients skews a lot older, that digital is really not for them. And what you're gonna see, what you're kind of starting to see is that it's the combination of advisor-led advice, right? People pay for advice and, and money is very personal, whether you have $5 to invest or you have $5 trillion to invest. It's, it's very personal. Paired with the ease of use and the distilling down of complex information, I think that's what digital brings. And I'd like to see more companies move 
to the empathy piece around empathizing with that client journey and distilling down investments into an easy digestible piece. You're not taught investments or how to manage money in school, when you're, whether you're five years old or you're 15 or even in college, you're not really taught those principles of that, yet it's something that all of our lives revolve around. We, we need it, we have it, uh, or we have some level of it, and we need that to kind of power what we want to have done. And so the education piece, and that's not really talking about what a bond is or what a stock is, but really an education piece of what are your goals and what are your plans and how do we service that up in a digital environment is going to be really paramount to making sure you're servicing the whole entire family across generations. So is that how it's shifting for um, the client or are there some other things that you see that need to be done to focus directly on the client? What I often see is firms do a great job at servicing the client or what they think the client wants, but they tend to leave their advisor behind. And you've really got to solve the digital piece for your advisor, as well as your back office, or your operations, or your middle office. And by doing that, you ultimately end up servicing the client. A lot of times, client portals or client online sites are sometimes like lipstick on a pig, where there are manual operations still going on the background, or there's still a lot of paper being moved, or the office people are running around trying to solve something based on what the client did online or trying to show a client something online. So you really got to optimize end to end and that includes your advisor. You know, your advisor sometimes has to log, I don't think a lot of clients know this, but sometimes your advisor has to log into two or three systems to get you the answer. Yet we're giving you the answer as a client right online. Why aren't we doing that for our advisor? And if you empower the advisor, they will be your advocates for digital. And oftentimes digital and those online sites are not thought about as a product because there's no account number on it. They, Companies haven't figured out how to monetize it or make money off of it. Same thing with the employee version of the portal. They haven't thought about how they do that, but it's all about productivity. It's all about giving clients what they want, which is human-centered advice. And the advisor is more equipped to do that, has more time to do that, has more time doing that relationship management piece if they can get them and their teams out of the mundane. So do you feel like um, a company like yours has a advantage over the independent smaller RIA because of your size and your commitment to technology, your commitment to change technology and evolve? I do. We're having some very serious conversations about what we want our firm to look like and, and what we want people to experience and challenging the norms out there. What we have that RIAs don't is we have a technology team right? and we also have funding to string that together, where a lot of RIAs are much smaller. They may not have a technology team. They may have it under an ops and tech person, and I am doing air quotes right now when I do that. And that's great and fine, because you need someone there on a day-to-day -day basis to help everyone migrate and get on those tools. But what RIAs I tend to see not always think about is, how, sure, I'm going to go buy a CRM and license a CRM. I'm going to go buy a, a risk tool. I'm going to go buy you know, some of these other things, but how do I integrate them in the back? How do I make sure they're touching all the same data? How do I make sure when I get an answer in the CRM, it's the same answer in the risk tool, same answer in the rebalancing tool, same answer on the online site? And oftentimes, they're not. They're all truths of some sort based on what they know, but they're different truths. And so what a client, a company like ours does is really look across that and tries to get to one source of truth that everyone is rallying around, right? So one number or one data point 
and bringing those things together in a cohesive experience around that. And RIAs, we used to have the capital and the, the people power to do that, where RIAs or smaller RIAs don't so much, and so they're relying on a, a single vendor or multiple vendors to give them that cohesive experience, but it's, it's never really as cohesive as it can be. So are clients changing? Are they demanding you change, or is it you're figuring out what they want, so you're changing? Right. It's, it's a combination of both. So clients typically, especially older clients, have a way of doing things, right? They're used to waiting three months for their performance report. But as they start to look across the industry and look across about what's available out there, and millennials have really pushed that for the generation, so we should be thanking millennials instead of harping on them around that, is millennials have pushed for greater transparency, more real-time information, and ease of use. And everyone wants that whether you're in an analog or, or digital or virtual environment. And what clients are experiencing now is they're experiencing tools in other firms outside the financial industry that do just that. They distill, they make things easy, and they make things a lot more cohesive. And there's technology now being targeted to the older clientele. So take GrandPad as an example. If you look at that, that it's, a, it's like an iPad or a tablet device that comes shipped to your grandparent and it's set up with a few games, as well as easy buttons, big fat buttons for you to call or video call your family. Mm -hmm. And you see these commercials happening. Uh, Alexa was another one. Alexa, you know, rolled out with a commercial where, you know, the family's playing, you know, having fun with the grandma, and then they all leave, and the grandma is home alone and, and sad. At least that's what it projects. And the next day in the mail, uh, Alexa shows up, and you know, there's a little post-it note on it that says say call home and she says call home and the whole family's there on video right so there's a lot of those things that are powering it the other thing is the younger generation typically asks their grandparents and their parents for money and the way that they want to get that money is instantaneous so it's forcing a lot of the change around that so they're demanding a lot more change i'll, I'll tell you this little story about my mother-in-law mary lou she'll get a kick out of this uh, you know, she does Zumba on Mondays and Wednesdays, and she plays bridge on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and she lives, you know, in the beach near Rehoboth. She's a client of a private client of, uh, not ours, of some other firm, but while remaining at the moment. And I, I'm her personal help desk. So her fax, her fax machine, her fax combo printer, combo scanner, you know, the all-in-one wasn't working, the fax wasn't working. So we spent an hour on the phone. You know, did you restart it? You know, is the phone line plugged in? What does it say? I'm looking at the manual online and you know, we're, we're far apart, I can't just drive over there. And the firm had sent her a form that she needed to fill out and sign for whatever reason. And at the end of this hour, we're both frustrated. She says at the end of the call, Rad, why can't I just do this over the phone, over online, and fill this out online and sign it online? Why do I get to deal with the facts? And this was three years ago, mm -hmm. and she, you know, she's not young. She's in her eighties, at least I think she is, Mary Lou. If you're not, I'm sorry. But that's how that stuff is changing, right? She's used to going online. Like she has a LinkedIn profile. Why she needs a LinkedIn profile in her eighties is beyond me, but. You know, it says retired, has no picture, and she doesn't really know how to use it. She goes on my profile and says, Rod's a really nice 
you know, guy, you should hire him. I'm like, I'm not looking for a job. Don't embarrass me. But, but that, those are the types of things. So they're continuing to push those things. And remember, the older clientele have time on their hands, but the rest of us don't. And a lot of them have assets, which most of us don't either. Mm -hmm. So they're watching their money. They're playing around with things, and the younger generation is forcing it. And then I think from the industry side, we're trying to force different things. And some of those are just tough conversations with inside your company about how you're going to digitize and how you're going to optimize around that. So things like, why are we hiding performance? Why are we hiding fees? Not saying that we are fiduciary trustism, but as an industry, you see them hiding this type of stuff. And the client has to specifically ask, like I had to specifically ask my Morgan Stanley broker, where's the performance online? And he's like, I have to go turn that on. I don't know why they make me go turn that on. It's this fear between that these individuals at the company that are that are driving the client experience in, in a way to protect themselves. And we have to have real hard conversations around, this is what the client wants, they trump, not what we want. So we're recording this week in the offices of Jay Connolly, and we're lucky enough that downstairs there's a Starbucks, so we were hanging out there this morning doing a little work, and there was millennial after millennial coming in, not interacting with the Starbucks people, but just picking up their drinks because they ordered them earlier. Right. Um, so what you just said, isn't that a huge red flag that if we make this stuff so technology-focused that they're not going to know what to ask for? They're not going to know what to look for as far as returns. There, it's isn't this a huge danger? I don't think so. Maybe I'm off on a little island. Well, currently we are not on island, but I'm off on a little island on that. And the reason why I say that is, the whole premise of anyone's digital strategy should be not to replace the human interaction as it relates to advice and planning. But we, I just said they, they don't want the human interaction. So I, how do you insert that? I disagree with you, sir. <laughs> and if you look at the robo world, right? Everyone thought robo was going to change the industry and flip it up on side said. And what you found, and even the CEO, I heard the CEO Betterment, Betterment speak at a conference. And he came out and said, very few of our clients have 100% of their assets with us. They may have like 10% of their assets, and because it's a novelty type of thing in the beginning around it. So that's that's really important to kind of understand. And you've seen with the robos, those robos that have done a better job have paired it with human-centered device. Someone I can call to talk about my goals, my money, you know, what I want to do in life, what I want to buy a house, get married, etc., fund education, those types of things. And they use the robo-vehicle as a way to invest that money, but they paired it with human-centered advice. And those companies that are just doing you know, the robo-piece and self-servicing, not doing as great as the industry expected, in my opinion. You've got to have advice there. And I think when it comes like to something like ordering coffee, you don't need advice. But surely when it comes to buying a house, funding education, getting married, if you look at how the millennial and any generation is they're going out and asking for advice, whether it's a Facebook post and saying, Facebook hive mind, you know, what do you all think about this, right? And getting recommendations or going to speak to an advisor. It really depends on what it is. Even in the medical field, where you can replace some type of medical with some type of digital interaction, there is a human doctor that comes on board, right? And you're having a conversation around that. So the last thing you want to do is kind of give your health up to a, a computer not really under a computer is really not to understand pain, where it hurts, 
how you're feeling, emotions, that type of stuff. A human will understand that and bring that knowledge forward. So, so, the industry. so you think that's the big arrow in the in the pack against the Amazons and the Facebooks entering this industry? I do. I mean, I love Amazon. I spend way too much money on Amazon. There's a package that shows up almost every day, unfortunately. You uh, asked my partner about that one. But I do love it. And that's because... There are groups for you. <laughs> I, should, I need to start my own on my blog. There you go. But, but if you look at that, what have they done? They've made the shopping experience easy. They distilled down, back to the principles I talked about before, they distilled down the complex information around you can know where the size is. You know when you're going to get this thing. And they've made it extremely easy. Now, what you're not seeing with the Amazon experience, the current Amazon experience, not so much the financial is, if I'm looking for something, I may go seek advice elsewhere and then come to Amazon to buy. But when it comes to money, this is paramount. I will stick to this forever. You're going to need a human to interact with. It doesn't mean I need to sit face to face. It can be over the phone, it can be over video, it can be through something else. I'm gonna need a human to interact with. So you have quite an interesting pathway to being in financial services. You started young. I did, it's the best way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I started when I was 17. I started as a teller at Wells Fargo. I loved that job through and through. Human interaction. Human interaction. Every customer was different. You, you created a bond, even though you weren't a relationship manager. A lot of customers felt that in you because they knew, they could confide, they understood there was a relationship there. And you saw everything. Yes, you saw everything. They knew that you knew exactly what they had. Right. Everything was exposed there. Yeah. And the, map, the fact that you made it still confidential at the same time and had a human interaction was great. You knew if a client walked in and they wanted their balance, you weren't just going to shout it across the teller line. You know, you printed out a receipt or you wrote it down and you handed them a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. right? And they appreciated that around it. So why start at 17? Well, for a few reasons. I was working at Red Lobster before. <laughs> but, you know, these are the jobs you have when you're younger. And really the only benefit of Red Lobster was I got to eat as many Cheddar Bay biscuits as possible. So that was great. Uh, but I went to go open up my first account because I had a paycheck and I was still in high school and I went over across the street to the Wells Fargo and I was opening an account with the assistant manager who then offered me a job as a teller. So I had never, I, my favorite line is I've never applied for a job, I've always been asked to go do stuff. And she said, hey, we, how much are you making over there? And I was like, $5 an hour, <laughs> which was still good money you know, back then. And she said, well, we pay eight twenty-five to start. and. You know, you won't have to work Friday or Saturday nights. And I was like, you know, I was like, great. And go out and party with my friends. As much party you can do is at 17. And Saturdays, I only had to work till 2 o'clock. So it was, and no Sundays. This was like, great. I was like, but I'm still in high school and I had like my last period off. And so I go and work from 3 to 6. I'd hang my little shirt and tie and slacks in my car. And then after school, go and change to the bathroom and I'd go to work. And I started that early, and I just thought, oh, I'll just, you know, this was just to get me through until I was going to go to college the next year or things like that. And it was good money. It was double, almost double than what I was making. The hours were great. And then I found myself um, in a bad situation at home. So home has always been kind of crazy. I was 
a child of a lot of physical and mental abuse from both my father and mother and, and some of my siblings at times. And my father passed away when I was 18, and I decided that I wasn't going to take it anymore. So there was an incident at home. I rebelled against it. I was beat again, and then I was given uh, three black trash bags to pack my life in, and I left and just headed down a cul-de-sac <laughs> upper middle class town walking around with three trash bags um, and essentially was homeless. Not so much homeless on the street, but I had no place to call home, so I just bounced around as much as I could. And the Wells job and that teller job afforded me a place to call home. So eventually I left for a little bit and came back to handle kind of what I needed to handle. And I was able to put a roof over my head and they gave me a lot of opportunities. So I got moved up in the teller world, <laughs> that type of stuff and got paid more. And I was able to afford a roommate situation. And so it's always been kind of stable in that sense. So you were there quite a long time before you made this move. So was, what, what kind of stops did you make and what did you learn around, along the way? Yeah, I was there for 22 years. I never went to college as a result. I, I did go to University of Phoenix online um, at, as much as I could, but I never went to a formal type of college just because I, I couldn't. I, did, I wasn't really an adult at 18 and I didn't really know what I was doing. So I had a lot of mentors there that helped me through. I, they saw potential and I got moved up. So I moved up into a banker and then I moved up into a premier banker, kind of a relationship manager role for those clients with 250,000 or more in, in assets. And did the, did the company ever say, you're not educated, so we're not going to move you up? Or did no, they say, never. It has you're never learning been, here? Yeah, it's never been an impediment. And it's actually something I talk to people now. They want to go get their MBAs and things like that. And I think that's fine for them to do. But what I tell them is, use this job or use these jobs as an apprenticeship, if you want to think of it that way, where you're learning on the job. And what college is never going to teach you is how to interact with people and how to play any political fields that you need to, and how to woo people over, and how to be engaging. What was the best job you had there? Teller. Teller. Oh. Actually, I still think of Teller, but my, next, my other job from that is they flew me up to San Francisco, they moved me from San Diego to San Francisco. Yay. Yeah, that was really great. I got to come out uh, and figure out what gay meant by being in San Francisco at 22 years old, which San, was... San Francisco, the place you can be anything you want to be and nobody cares. <laughs> That's true. And there's a Yahoo group for you, uh, <laughs> you know, on top of that, around it. But my first job was to design systems for the bankers because they were rolling out a brand new system. Their merger had happened and they had no one on the team that had been an ex-banker. And so I was able to bring that knowledge to a group of people who were well-seasoned, who knew what they were doing, but I had a voice. And that's what they hired. They hired the voice. They hired a voice. And that was really a fun job. I got to travel around. I did a lot of traveling during a lot of those years. And I still had this huge connection to the front office. And I had this huge connection to the people that made change and make things matter. So I was playing a kind of a conduit role between the both. And I I realized throughout all my jobs there, I've really just honed in on who I was. And I really didn't understand what that was until I had a lot of people do some deep coaching around behavioral things. I mean, I was horrible at times with my attitude. I needed a lot of coaching and a lot of discipline in that sense because I really wasn't getting it elsewhere. And I really didn't have a family unit to go back to and I really wasn't raised in, in that type of sense. 
And so Wells became a huge family. You know, I found my moms and my dads and my brothers, and my cousins and my sisters around there, and they all kind of helped me succeed. And education was never a problem. They actually helped fund uh, my education online, which was really helpful for me. And they've always just given me opportunities. I've always had people that just believed in, in what I thought and what I said and guided me through that. So this is the Permission to Succeed podcast. Was, was there one time, but I get a sense from you, there were many times along this, this journey that you've given yourself permission to succeed and be who you are. I needed, yeah, I needed to figure that out. So I needed to figure out that I was gay because growing up in an Arab American family household where we also were Catholic, and I went to Catholic school at the same time. I was there with you. I'm sorry. A lot of the story later. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> gay meant you had AIDS. And when AIDS was talked in, about in school, I was like, well, I don't have AIDS. I don't have, so I'm not gay. But I know what I, I, know what I like. I'm, not, I'm 18, 19. I understand what turns me on, right, in that type of sense. So I had to find who I was. And I also had to be okay with my personality. So yeah, it's, I can, it can be a little bit flamboyant at times, or it can be a little st stricter at times. I bring comedy into a lot of things I do just to kind of put people at ease. You know, I might be loud and bold at times and obnoxious when I was younger, and I try to turn down the obnoxiousness. But I had to be really okay with my strengths. And I think what people don't understand about that is sometimes the things that you're most embarrassed about is your strength and it's how you hone in on that strength so being out at work was a, not embarrassing it was really hard to kind of come out because i was coming out to family even though everyone else knew cliche i get it but i had to be okay with it and once i was okay with it other people were i used that toward my advantage i'd find others that were like me and helped pull them wherever they needed to be pulled and made sure that they knew their diversity was a strength. Have you found such a uh, industry that's very suit and tie and buttoned up accept you as well? That was like a, that's a really great question, and it's a really interesting thing I have have had the battle on because I'm not a suit and tie type of guy, and it's a very you know cis white male world around there, and I'm coming in, you know, as an Arab and as gay and you know as a younger person and I at times I held myself back but I realized no one else was holding me back I was holding myself back so if I look back I could have just been more me and been okay and the whole time all these people were giving me opportunity after opportunity and not necessarily based on my diversity but based on what I was bringing to the table and my skills giving yourself permission that's right. And even today, I, I, I hone in on that. I, I hone in on the things that I think I'd like to improve and very vocal about those so that people know it's okay. You've you got to be real. And if you're not real, no one's going to listen to you. You're not going to have any followers. And certainly no one's going to buy off on your strategy either. So um, we'll get you out of here on this. What advice would you have to all those other tellers that want to be entrepreneurs and do something else? Find a coach, get coaching. And I don't mean mentoring, and I don't mean advocacy. Find someone that you work with, that you respect, that you build trust with, and find multiple people, and make sure they're giving you in-the-moment feedback, and that it's both good and harsh. And focus on the harsh stuff, 
and turn that around. You've got time. Focus on the good stuff and knock that out of the park even more. The only way you're ever going to own your space or move is by really taking coaching into your practice. It's as, it is as important as balancing your drawer. That's great. Rod, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. For everyone at the Iris.xyz and the Permission to Succeed podcast, and we like to thank Jay Connolly for being our gracious host this week. This is Doug Heikinen. Thank you so much for joining us. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit ThompsonIM.com. Thompson IM Funds. Smart investing starts here.